were totally empty. And their lives were really useless. So what the fuck? They didn't have no sense of humor. This is hell. Live from late capitalism where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. The post office is a radically revolutionary democratic concept. The idea of guaranteeing inexpensive mail delivery to everyone while respecting the privacy of both the sender and the recipient no matter their station in life, was, until the U.S. Postal Service Act of 1792, unheard of. The Postmaster General was even given a cabinet position reflecting the Postal Service's importance in the founding of the United States. As today's guest quotes Alexis de Tocqueville writing in his 1835 treatise, Democracy in America, the U.S. mail system, unlike its European counterpart, was organized so as to bring the same information to the door of the poor man's cottage and to the gate of the palace. That means any and all mail, no matter how difficult it may be to read the name or the address of the intended recipient, it all must be delivered. And that can be a challenging task. So challenging that it takes actual humans to determine what the correct address is. And that's problematic for the post office or what has become the United States Postal Service. See, the post office is no longer the post office, having changed from being a cabinet position from being a government agency to being a business in the late 60s. While prior to its privatization, the post office was pursuing new technologies to deliver mail better and faster, it wasn't until it became a business that the laser-like focus on automation took place and the post office's priority became a balanced budget in the bottom line and not delivering the mail. With automation in the bottom line now guiding the newly renamed United States Postal Service, worker management tensions quickly arose around the continuing automation of postal work. Think about it. What if you worked somewhere that on day one, you are told that your job will likely be automated soon, so don't get too comfortable working here. And then 25 years later, your boss is still telling you the same thing. We'll learn all about the historical tensions between management and postal workers over technology and automation in a few when we speak with Brian Justy, who wrote the Logic Magazine article, The Non-Machinables, after 150 years of technological innovation. The problems facing the United States Postal Service are only getting harder, which you can find at logicmag.io. Brian is a doctoral candidate at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a researcher at the UCLA Labor Center. You can follow Brian on Twitter at... The letter B, followed by four underscores. Then the letter J, followed by five underscores. Find out more about Brian at b-j.us. You can find all of that at our website. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow. Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll tell you what's happening on this is hell next week. And of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin during this week's moment. Jeff's coming to dinner. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how has your week gone so far? 
Uh, not great, but real great to be at the bar last night eating lychees off of a dirty table and talking about our favorite Marshawn Lynch dance moments. <laughs> so when did you get over here? Uh, Early? Yeah. Oh, that's did the Alex special of uh, came here at 6.30, left at 7.50 without I, saying goodbye to anyone. I was here for a couple of hours. I got over here at around 8.30, and I didn't know that those were lychee nuts. I had no idea what that was. It was kind of frightening. I also missed out on the sausages, unfortunately. Did you try one of them cookies? No. Oh. I still got some up here, too, if you want some. I was not certain what kind they were. It was chocolate. Yeah, but, I mean, you know. No, why does everyone, every time you bring something to the bar, everyone just asks if there's weed in it? But it's like, can it just be a nice cookie? It can be, but the regularity of the other process. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> this may have been the longest week of my life. Every day seems longer than the last, and I'll tell you why following our talk with Brian on the post office. But... We must be doing something right here at This Is Hell because the number of friend requests I'm getting from accounts that have no friends claiming to be sexy ladies who want to meet me and become better acquainted, those requests are skyrocketing. On top of that, it's no longer only sexy ladies in very revealing clothing. The fake accounts sending friend requests in an attempt to hack me now include not only those of sexy ladies, but sexy dudes as well. And as of yesterday, I have now had a flood of requests from alleged dominatrixes. We must be doing something right, because following our coverage of Sheikh Jarrah and our recent talks on genocide of the indigenous in the U.S. and institutional racism embedded in the founding documents of the United States, suddenly all kinds of hotties of all types want to hack us. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you repeating? These people are trying to hack me. These people are trying to hack me. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, this week's question from hell is, what mantra are you repeating what mantra are you repeating? We got an email overnight from our correspondent in Budapest, Hungary, Todd Williams. Todd writes, hey, dudes, wanted to let you know I've got a podcast now. We started doing some interviews with people here, some of which are actually good. This most recent one we did is actually right up This Is Hell's Alley. Todd then shares a link to the 011 podcast, episode number 48, titled Post-Communism, Economics, and Politics in Hungary. Todd adds, our primitive website made by me is at 011podcast.com, and if you search 011podcast, we show up on the aggregators, I think. Could I post or share this on the This Is Hell Facebook page and the big one? A shout-out from you, maybe. Sorry, Todd, we simply don't have the time to give a shout-out about your 011 podcast at 011podcast.com, and we definitely do not have time to check out specifically your podcast on post-communism, economics, and politics in Hungary. That said, Alex will be sharing your links on our social media platforms this weekend. Coming up, the constant and historic tension between management and workers at the post office over automation. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast, and there will be the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. Alex, I'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. 
Uh, live from the nightmare of want. This is hell. There was a time when the post office was part of the cabinet, a government agency, but those times are ancient history. And the post office is no more replaced by the privatized United States Postal Service as a business with its focus on the bottom line and balanced budgets. Management at the biggest employer of public sector workers has become increasingly hostile toward postal workers. And with a mandate to constantly automate and integrate new technologies, those tensions have grown. Here to guide us through the history of the post office, its transformation of the postal service, and the troubled relationship between workers and management, Brian Justy wrote the Logic Magazine article, The Non-Machinables, After 150 Years of Technological Innovation. The problems facing the United States Postal Service are only getting harder, which you can find at logicmag.io. Welcome to This Is Hell, Brian. Hi, Chuck. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. This is a fascinating article. We've discussed the post office numerous times on the show, and there are a lot of postal workers who hang out at the bar downstairs from the studio. So it's always great to talk about the Postal Service, and in a way that we have not discussed it before. You begin by writing about a new department, the New York City Police or Post Office, uh, established around 1870, called the Bureau of Hards, which you ex- uh, explain took its name from the informal term clerks received or reserved for the most challenging pieces of mail when it came to reading the address. You add, delivering hards no matter the cost is a reflection of the U.S. Post Office's commitment to truly universal service, a radical vision of democratic communications infrastructure enshrined in the Postal Service Act of 1792. How is that a radical vision in 1792. Was it unprecedented? And was there universal support for the post office, which again, you describe as radical? Did the radical notion of the post office cause concern among the powerful? That is a good question. Um, There are a lot of, you know, professional postal historians who um, I think could give much more thorough answers to that question than I can. Uh, I read a lot of their work in writing this piece. And I think one thing that came out um was that yeah this was a sort of novel idea at the time um you mentioned this early on but alexis de tocqueville wrote about the postal service in his uh you know very sort of formative and influential book democracy in america and i think that the attention he pays to the postal service does sort of indicate how um you know noteworthy it was he compares it to existing systems in europe which were much more inaccessible to the masses or not accessible at all, much more fractured and uh, usually sort of centered around whatever kind of, uh, you know, royal uh, or, you know, sort of systems of empire existed. Um, And they were not intended whatsoever to be, you know, these sort of uh, vehicles for mass communication. And so with the, you know, uh, westward expansion, let's call it, um, the Postal Service in America became really central to a growing economy, um, a growing populace. And yeah, some of these historians, um, you know, center, whether this is justified or not in full, the center of the postal service has sort of like, you know, a linchpin to the founding of the country um, and really, really emphasize the sort of outsized role played by the postal service. Um, and, you know, it, I guess it can't really be overstated that, um, you know, <laughs> Despite it being a radical vision, it wasn't actually uh, that in practice all the time. Uh, It took a while for mail services to be available to everyone, to the public. Um, And I think 
the 19th century where you get a lot of that playing out. Um, that's sort of where my story starts in the late 19th, mid to late 19th century. But, um, you know, it was initially you could only send mail from post office to post office. There was no direct to uh, individual addresses. Uh, you know, there was no way to deliver to direct, direct addresses. People had to line up in long lines outside the post office to check their mail every day. Um, rural delivery cost more. So it took a while to sort of make it this thing that we now sort of, I think maybe take for granted that you can send anything to anywhere, but yeah, that sort of played out over the 18th and 19th centuries. Having to address it to a, a specific person instead of having to send it to a post office, is that what drives the mechanization of the post office? Because he write the first machines arrived in post offices in the 1870s, and it's no coincidence that the first postal worker unions were formed then, too. By the turn of the 20th century, the post office and its government overseers had set into mo- motion an unceasing drive to maximize the role of machines and minimize the role of humans. So was this mechanization, was the attempts at automation, was this also, was this all driven by the fact that there was going to be home delivery? That uh, I think is a good question to ask. And I think that if my article contributes anything to, you know, the sort of postal history discourse, it would be to, you know, sort of center the role of technology in this uh, history, which is often told as a sort of social history. Um, which of course, you know, technology and the question of the social are not uh, unrelated to one another. But I think that, yeah, it's it's not coincidental that machines and unions show up at the same time. And that's, you know, in, again, in the sort of mid to late uh, 19th century, a, f- a bunch of things, a bunch of factors sort of uh, coalesce around that time. Among other things, that's when they introduce uh, free rural delivery. That's when um, they start to do as you said, home delivery, um, there is an enormous and very quick expansion of the number of post offices around the country. So all of a sudden, um, you know, this is, I think, where we get, we get closer to this sense of something like seemingly democratic and accessible. People have access to it. Um, and that ultimately means there's this enormous uptick in mail volume. And, on, you know, unsurprisingly, like hiring the number of workers required to keep up with this is quite expensive. And early on, um, you know, the postal service, there's, there's sort of uh, inconsistent data on whether or not the postal service was making any money at this point. But I think that what is clear is that the postal service, which at the time was called the post office department, it was not yet the postal service, but the governmental overseers weren't super concerned with, um, you know, these fiscal concerns because they saw this as this enormous, opportunity to sort of, you know, in, as is stated in the uh, 1792 act to quote, bind the nation together. So it was this, you know, cause for investment, not for, you know, um, nitpicking the bottom line to figure out what's what, uh, you know, financially. So machines, I think are an inevitable, um, you know, addition to the post office, but they do start to put new pressures on the workers there. Um, you know, there's new expectations around delivery time. People now know that they can get stuff delivered to their door, uh, which this continues to be a, a theme um, in, you know, contemporary uh, mail delivery. You know, you think about Amazon's same day or one day delivery, sort of putting newfound pressure on what is expected of the Postal Service. But that sort of trade-off between public and private uh, uh, offerings is a, is a very long-running theme. There were little private upstarts in big cities as well, competing with the Postal Service at this time. So I think the machine question is, you know, predictable and um, raises 
or sort of points to some interesting kind of, uh, you know, underlying tensions in this very quickly growing uh, institution, postal service. So I think the article, if it achieves anything, hopefully it's sort of attempting to point at that and say, hey, we can, we can learn a lot about, you know, the relationship between, let's say, public service and innovation by looking at the kind of tumultuous history of technology at the postal service, this beloved public institution. And you mentioned these hard-to-read addresses. These hards have never been simply a technical problem in need of a technical solution. Rather, hardness is better understood as an index of the social and political conditions under which mail is delivered. Taken together, these two deciphering operations, the 19th Century Bureau of Hards and the 21st Century Remote Encoding Center, become legible as something like the origin and destination of an arduous and ongoing struggle between postal management and postal workers over the question of technological change. So let's just dwell on that for a little bit. How does hardness, the difficulty to decipher a handwritten address or any address, reflect social and political conditions under which mail is delivered? Well, I would say that um, the question of handwriting is one we can and should talk about, but hardness, so to speak, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with handwriting alone. That's, you know, a, a sort of um, important bit of this story, but um, I think hardness, you know, this, this bureau of hards where they handle the hardest mail, that's where you get these kind of edge cases and outliers and, you know, potentially misaddressed or, you know, destroyed pieces of mail. And it sort of puts pressure on the institution, the Postal Service, to live up to their kind of universalist, universal, um, you know, ethos. Like, that's what the Postal Service, the Post Office Department was founded upon. And uh, it, you know, it basically calls their bluff. If they can't deliver all the mail, then they're not really universal. And so what you do with those outliers, I think kind of is where you can kind of see whether or not there's some friction between the kind of mission statement and the actual operations. Um, and so, yeah, early on, all mail was hand addressed um, or most mail was hand addressed. I mean, that changes over time, obviously, but so there's a, a single piece of mail that I talk about uh, in the piece, this letter that, went through the Bureau of Hards that was addressed from New York City to Chappaqua, which is just a 30 miles north of the city. But it took days and days. They were sending this uh, letter, which no postal clerk could read, from one post office to another, and everyone was rejecting it, saying, hey, we can't read this. And then it ends up back in this, you know, this sort of new uh, upstart Bureau of Hards, and someone spends a whole day looking at it with magnifying glasses and you know, cross-checking their address database and whatever. Um, and then finally figures out that it was Chappaqua and then, you know, they deliver it that same day, just 30 miles North. But the fact, or the sort of the interesting bit there is just that they spent the time to get that single piece of mail <laughs> to its destination, um, you know, despite all obstacles. And so I think as time goes on, the question sort of, um, continues to linger and, you know, the stakes maybe become higher as volume, mail volume goes up, but just what to do with the stuff that doesn't, you know, fit nicely within the postal delivery system. Um, you know, so I think this question of hards can tell you a lot about the ethos driving the postal service or any public service, really, what, what to do with the sort of, you know, the tricky cases, whether we can think about almost any public service or any public institution, and we can compare that to what a private business might do with the stuff that costs more. Um, and so I think, again, you can, this is where you can kind of see uh, let's say the sort of shifting um, shape of an institution like the Postal Service change over 150 years in terms of how they handle these, these outliers. 
But the outliers, as you point out in your article, are not always the handwritten addresses anymore. You look at the late 19th century and the Montgomery Wards catalog and then the explosion of direct mail and commercial mail that happens in the early 20th century and just continues and continues to grow. You point out that those are the pieces of mail that often are are the hards now. It's not the ones that are the handwritten messages. So why is it that these automated labels that are placed on direct mail that seem to be or should be the most clearly marked, why do those become hards? Right. So um, part of this piece, I mean, this piece was sort of, uh, it's, uh, let's say, I decided to write this because I found out about this kind of incredible facility in Utah called the Remote Encoding Center, um, which we can talk about, I think, in more detail if, if you want. Um, but that was the sort of like locus of this piece because that is the contemporary Bureau of Hards, so to speak. That's where the, you know, all those outliers uh, are dealt with today. And those outliers number into about a billion pieces of mail per year go through this place. And so I went there last summer uh, in the middle of middle of COVID, I did a, a socially distanced visit because as it turns out, workers there, it's called the remote encoding center, but it's actually work that cannot be performed remotely. So they all had to keep coming in the, you know, there's a lot riding on the operation at this, or the operations at this place. Um, and I went there having read occasional popular media accounts of this place, cause it's a sort of fascinating uh, thing that it, this still exists. And most of those are, you know, these sort of human interest puff pieces like, Oh, is your bet? Is your handwriting terrible? Like, do you know where your mail goes? And they all center this, this sort of bad handwriting issue. And so I went there expecting workers to tell me about the worst handwriting they see. And I sat and watched them work and was very quickly <laughs> became aware of the fact that most of what they see is machine printed mail. Um, and then after kind of, asking some probing questions, try to figure out what, why that was the case. Um, I learned a handful of things. One of them is that with automated bulk commercial mail, where the, you know, the mail itself is the address line is printed by a machine. Uh, a lot of bulk senders are cutting costs on ink on paper. Um, you know, they're, they're generating like many, many thousands of pieces of mail and little things can go wrong where the printer gets a, something happens with the ink and then the entire batch of mail has like a bad smudge over the zip code. And then the entire batch of mail goes through the remote encoding center because again, it all has to get delivered. And in this case, what's getting delivered isn't some kind of sentimental, you know, birthday card from grandma that it would, you know, make sense to invest a little bit more to get that to uh, little Johnny or whatever for his birthday. But here it's actually just catalogs and, you know, bills and paperwork and stuff that no one really wants, but still has to get delivered. And so that was one of the things that I found out quickly was that, you know, machine printed bulk mail uh, on the senders end, they're cutting costs and cutting corners. And so that leads to this surfeit of stuff that ends up at the remote encoding center. But also, and this was sort of surprising to me, um, we could kind of look at this from the perspective of like the glut of bureaucracy um, there's all kinds of rules and regulations, especially with, and I'm not necessarily, um, critical of, of these existing, but something like HIPAA, which is, you know, set of laws protecting health data. Um, there are, are, are like really strict rules about how health insurance companies, for example, have to communicate with their members. And so one of the things, despite this being totally out of step with, uh, you know, people's actual experience is that 
health insurance companies have to send mail to the something like an address that has been on file for more than six months. So when people move, health insurance companies are sending mail to the wrong address because they're legally required to do so for some number of months. Like, and there's this kind of period of slippage where someone's real address and, and the sort of known address in the USPS database are not aligned with one another. And then that mail like that, if it hasn't also already been um, addressed with the change of address form, which is, you know, people fill those out, but I think a lot of people don't, there's like a certain amount of just sort of stuff that falls through the cracks of bureaucracy that also goes through the rec. And so those, in that case, the hard is actually has less to do with, you know, the address not being legible. It has more to do with just a sort of mismatch between the people and their and addresses that the USPS sort of already has on file. Um, so there's a bunch, and then again, there also is just handwritten mail that goes through the rec, but that sort of uh, the percentage of handwritten mail has gone down a lot. And the majority of the mail that goes through the rec is actually now machine printed, which is I think sort of interesting and probably not what they expected to be the case when they when they started these things in the in the 90s. When the 1792 Post Office Act goes into effect, one of the things is that it must be affordable. In other words, it must be accessible to all citizens. I'm pretty sure that they were not thinking that there is going to be an explosion in direct marketing mailing in the late 1800s and early 1900s. To what degree do direct mailing and catalog companies take advantage of a system that was meant for citizens to be able to communicate with each other at an affordable rate? Uh, something that I, there's, I don't even know where this came from. I think this is, this is by no means an original, uh, coinage, but the phrase, the spam subsidizes the ham, um, I think pretty well describes postal <laughs> operations for the last century. Um, and again, I think this is the case that, uh, as the postal service sort of undergoes this kind of century long transformation, which is crystallized in the 1970 postal reorganization act. What is also what's happening over this period is this sort of, I think, as you, as you put it, sort of shift to, um, you know, kowtowing to the whims of commercial mailers because they're sending a lot more mail. They're willing to do these enormous deals to get bulk rates. So they're paying less per parcel, but they're committing to however many millions of parcels, you know, sent. And the Postal Service kind of feels the, the tightening budget and kind of has to go seeking these deals out, which is, again, hard to fault them for that. But uh, the question is what happens then to, you know, regular people's mail, let's say. Um, and it, the, the truth is that all this commercial mail is what is kind of subsidizing those birthday cards from grandma or whatever. You can't, you wouldn't be able to have the latter without the former. That said, that is itself a sort of social or political um, decision. That's not something that had to be the case. We could, we, you could have had the USPS you know, sort of reject commercial mail outright and just invest in a sort of citizen to citizen, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, um, communication system. But that's not, you know, that seems sort of uh, maybe ridiculous to even speculate about now, but that could have been the case. Um, you know, the Montgomery Ward catalog that you mentioned was one of the, it was the first of its kind. Um, also, I think it was in the 1860s, I want to say. Um, and yeah, that sort of became the model that would come to define the next 150 years of uh, sort of the postal service, but it didn't need to be that way. It's hard to think otherwise, but it didn't need to be that way. 
You write about the keyers, the people who work in the remote encoding centers that determine what the address is, the actual human beings. And you write how in the past, different sections of the remote encoding center facility were hardwired to handle different types of mail, creating a bustling, sometimes chaotic environment. Keyers would walk or occasionally run from one section to another as keying queues ebbed between parcel types throughout their shift. Every keying station is stocked up with a now is stocked up with a keyboard, a monitor, and three or four desktop towers, each dedicated to one of the many acronymic, acronymic uh, systems in use. Many of those towers are brand new, but run as virtual machines, emulating le- legacy software platforms developed decades ago. In lieu of physically moving throughout the facility, keyers speed back and forth between different programs every several minutes each time re-entering their username and password. Brand new computer towers running old incompatible systems. What does that say to you, Brian, about how the post office operates or its priorities? I think it's, you know, I'll start to become a broken record here, but it's, it's another place where you can kind of see this, you know, institution put under the pressure of a sort of like business first, um, you know, uh, mission, I guess, let's say. And so part of the reason why you have this sort of, um, it, it was it was honestly kind of incredible to see it because it felt like the thing that keyers do, which is to say they essentially add a little bit of metadata to a digital image. That's a, something we all do every day when you add a caption to Instagram, whatever. It, 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 that itself is it's a technical sort of process that is not terribly... Uh, advanced or, or sort of resource intensive um, on its own. But I say that now from the, you know, from 2021 looking backwards and it, and in the eighties, when this stuff was kind of getting spun up for the first time um, it required a lot more uh, machinery and, and just was, is a much heavier lift, I guess, to make that happen. Um, and so along the way, the postal service is not investing, you know, in this in one fell swoop, but is doing it in fits and starts with a hodgepodge of contractors, um, Lockheed Martin, Siemens built a lot of this stuff, but in different sort of contract periods. So I think, again, this is where you can kind of see just an inevitable outcome of a sort of like big churning bureaucracy where there's there's postal management uh, on the one hand, there's the sort of congressional overseers, there's all the contracting firms. And so what you end up with is this piecemeal approach to, uh, again, what initially was a sort of, you know, this is a universal solution, a universal sort of communications infrastructure. Then you get it kind of parceled out, um, no pun intended, sorry, in in this kind of way that like leads to exactly what you just just described and what I saw when I went to the rec, which is to say um, a lot of different systems sort of piled on top of one another. And, you know, the rec now handles letters, which are what they sound like, packages, which is what they sound like, uh, what they call what the postal service calls flats, which is like magazines and other sort of large, um, larger than a letter, but still flat things. And then also a lot of other just types of paperwork. So they're doing change of address forms that get dropped off at the, at a local post office and, you know, get sent, get scanned and sent to the rec for sort of deciphering. Um, and so there's a bunch of different types of input, let's say. Um, and again, each of those has has its own kind of dedicated system for handling it, even though it's all kind of the same thing happening. I mean, one interesting thing is that the machines in processing plants for handling letters 
and handling packages are, are very different. It's not the same machine that can handle this, you know, small standardized sized letter thing. And then packages, which can be any number of dimensions, sizes, weights, et cetera. And so packages are particularly challenging for processing plants and, and actually a large chunk of what actually ends up at the rec. But um, this was something that didn't make it into the article itself, but I is, I think, again, indicative of the kind of work that happens at the rec and what the peers are doing. Because of the type of machinery at the processing plants, packages go through the sorting machine and the ones that are illegible to the machine stay on the conveyor belt for another, I think they told me about 90 seconds as it's going through the usual sorting process, but it doesn't yet have a label on it with a new address that is sort of human verified. And so an illegible package that arrives, the digital image that arrives at the rec arrives as what they call live mail. And it has a literal countdown clock attached to it where the keyer needs to decipher it before it gets to the end of the conveyor belt such that it can stay within the kind of automated mail stream and not require any extra human intervention to pull it off the conveyor belt and then put it back on at the beginning. So there's a sort of time crunch element that is not there for letters and uh, flats and, and other things. And so there's this really kind of intense people that get, you know, the keyers that end up on the, uh, on the live mail queues are working in this very sort of intense way that, um, you know, all the work is very intense, but this is uh, particularly high stakes, I guess. And part of that is because the postal service, you know, for better or worse, every time a human touches a package, it's just like, you can hear the little cha-ching in their budget line, that's more expensive. And so there's this kind of overarching um, narrative, let's call it, uh, attending postal operations over the last 100, 150 years to minimize the you know sort of necessity of humans and maximize the sort of power and adeptness of machines um and so again at the rec is where you see a lot of the sort of like blurry boundaries between those two things and uh it's where a lot of interesting decisions get made about how to handle those things that do kind of challenge the automated system and require this very costly human intervention um yeah so but, but privacy plus technology that's supposed to equal efficiency this does not sound like an efficient system when you have all these different platforms that people have to keep re-entering their login names and their passwords. So what is the post office any more efficient today following the 1970 Postal Reorganization Act and the focus on automation? Is the post office any more efficient as a privatized entity than it was as a public entity? Um, I guess it depends on how you measure efficiency. Um, also, the Postal Service isn't a privatized entity per se. Uh, it kind of exists in this weird sort of like, you know, purgatory between being a business, which is what was codified in that 1970 Postal Reorganization Act, but still being a business that is ostensibly committed to this sort of universal commitment to service. Um, and so, the question of efficiency is exactly where you can kind of see those competing dynamics play out. I mean, one way to look at that um, would be would be from the perspective of, like, in terms of efficiency, it would be from the perspective of the bottom line and postal service still loses a lot of money. So you might say, no, postal service is not very efficient. Um, another perspective would be that just to look at how much mail they actually deliver, they're you know delivering 150 billion uh, pieces of mail per year about a billion of those go through the rec, 5 million per day. Um, so that's, you know, if, if you lopped off that extra billion, I think you'd have a lot of unhappy 
customers, some of them commercial senders, some of them, you know, sort of human, normal, non-commercial senders. Um, and so the fact that those can still get delivered would indicate from a sort of sender receiver perspective that it's efficient enough. Um, another way to look at it would be to say that, uh, or to cite the statistic that since 1950, the number of mail pieces per postal worker, which could be a sort of gauge of efficiency has doubled, meaning there are there's a lot of mail still going through the system, but the number of workers has been on a kind of steep decline. Again, thank, thanks both to tightening budgets and, you know, sort of a, uh, I guess we could call it a sort of a gradual shift towards something like a more businessy uh, privatized service, but also just the role of technology. And, um, you know, the USPS controls, the USPS's tech infrastructure is sort of unparalleled. Um, and so, I think the question of efficiency might be better reframed as just a sort of like, what does the future hold for the USPS? Um, and I think as last year's sort of uh, chaotic election, um, uh, the fact that it was a mail-in vote um, and the USPS attracted all its attention because of a hostile postmaster general, et cetera, like a lot of decisions I think are being made right now about what the USPS should be um, and I think depending on your view of the question of its efficiency, you might come to a very different answer about whether there even should be a USPS moving forward. Um, I think mm, from a few different angles, it'd be hard to argue that like the USPS is more efficient than Amazon, but that, those are less of questions about technical efficiency and more question about social efficiency, maybe is one way to put it. And you write that the vast infrastructure required to affix problematic parcels with a packet of human verified metadata, a thankless cleanup job performed in the service of machines is the culmination of a century and a half of technological change in the service of the machine. I just want to talk about that, that kind of concept with automation more generally for a moment. It is, it's postal service automation not machines working for people, but workers in the service of machines and post office aside, is that what automation means for jobs? Not machines working for us and making our jobs easier and better, but us working for machines. What does that dynamic kind of say to you? I think, yeah, I think you're, you're putting it well. And I think that you can see exactly that sort of thing play out um, at the postal service. I mean, there's a, I talk about this in the piece, but there's a really interesting um, sort of pivot that happens in the early 80s where the Postal Service moves from what we might call mechanization to automation. And one of the differences there um, between these two paradigms is just, it actually does lie in the ability to just read the address. If the machine itself can read the address, then it can actually handle almost all of the sorting. Um, but if a human still needs to be there to kind of read the address and then key in some kind of, uh, you know, machine readable code such that the machine can then take it from there. Um, that was how the sort of prior mechanization era, uh, worked. But in, I think I want to say 1982, uh, the postal service introduces its first optical character recognition system for mail sorting, which is again, where you get this kind of like machine ability to read addresses. And I think to answer your question about like who's serving who, um, the Postal Service creates a new employment category, even though the people who are operating the, the workers who are operating the mechanization era machines, you know, that was a really, that was really a human intensive work. Like there was a lot of um, 
sort of pre-handling that had to occur so that the machine could, you know, take in, the machine could handle uh, the, the sort of pieces of mail, which meant like orienting the piece upright, um, you know, taking out the sort of things that aren't going to fit, et cetera. And then the, in 1982, with this, with this new sort of OCR automatic reader, they introduced a new employment category, which uh, the title was male processor. It used to be operator, male operator, or there's a few different titles, but it went from operator to processor. And I think even just in that little rhetorical shift, you do get a sense of a kind of like misplaced agency where it's kind of like, oh, so now all of a sudden I'm being called a male processor, which sounds like I'm, that's almost a machinic way of describing the human. Uh, versus operator, which does, I think, put the human worker in the, in the sort of driver's seat. Um, and then, you know, Postal Union pushed back and uh, the National Labor Review Board actually sided with management and said, no, this is fine. Uh, you can, this is a new category. This is a new type of work. Um, and it actually wasn't these, the OCR automated readers weren't actually that good at doing what they purported to do, except once you got this extra little, um, you know, bureaucratic or sort of technocratic shift in the background where the work itself has been redefined, you know, putting human just in the sort of role of assistant. Um, that meant many could also reduce wages. This, this new employment category with a few rungs on the pay grade scale below that of the, uh, the, the mechanized machinery uh, operator. And so it, things like that are what made automation viable, like kind of redefining the role of the human rather than it's just technological progress itself. So I think that would give you some clues as to this question of, you know, who's working for who and uh, which machines or humans, which are being sort of prioritized. Um, there's been a, a long over-promised and under-delivered um, dream of, of this sort of fully automated mailstream, which is this kind of thing hanging over my whole story where, Postal management are, are talking about this for decades and decades and decades that like we can kind of fully automate the delivery of mail. Um, and so I think that the way I phrased it, you know, the sort of thankless cleanup job in the service of machines is true in a sort of like just literal way, but also in a figurative way, like this isn't humans decoding other handwritten letters that other humans have sent, but in fact, it's humans kind of trudging through this, you know, pile of junk mail. That's most of, most of it is printed by a machine. So you have this interesting, yeah, interesting um, flip, I think that again, maybe early sort of postal um, overseers maybe couldn't have seen coming, but at the same time helped to grease the skids to make that kind of outcome inevitable. You write of automated machines at the post office. The first to arrive was the mechanical canceller. Mechanical cancelers, like many of the technological novelties that would eventually make their way into the post offices, helped to set unprecedented expectations for postal worker productivity. Why does technological advances, why does that mean unprecedented expectations for worker productivity? When technologies are integrated into the postal service, do postal workers always end up with more work? Um, I mean, the history would, would say yes. And that's also, you know, there's a few really great postal historians who, who focus on like labor history. And that is pretty much the sort of through line um, that can connect uh, pretty much all, every era of, uh, of postal operations. Um, I think that, yeah, the mechanical canceler, that's in like 1870s. Um, 
all that meant was, you know, the, the canceller is referring to just voiding postage. So ensure that, you know, a stamp can't be used twice. You have to essentially just like black it out. And it, there was a particular way it worked, but workers in the late 19th century had to do that by hand. It's pretty slow, tiresome, whatever. And then this thing, you know, streamlined the process, but which I think workers initially were like, great, this makes my job easier. But then inevitably management is like, okay, you are working at, you know, five times faster than you were last week with this new machinery. So like, actually that's the new baseline. And then when we ask you to speed it up a little bit further, I'll, you know, again, you get this kind of quite predictable outcome where new technology mean, you know, sort of re uh, redefines the work itself. Um, and then kind of redefines the role of the human worker such that with, this is the, the true uh, over the course of this, the story that I tell. And also there's a bunch of types of machines that I, I don't even address, but like each new machine does mean a kind of new, slightly redefined relationship between postal management and postal workers. Um, the machines in the seventies and eighties, I was discussing a second ago um, before the 1982 sort of new male employer or new male employee category, male processor, the, the uh, machine that was dominant in the 60s and 70s was called a multi-position letter sorting machine. And there's a really, I think, telling um, sort of anecdote from that era where workers and management are arguing over whether or not those machines should be sort of designed such that workers can key an image or key a letter, which is to say type in a little sort of pre-sorted code um, and then they, the worker themselves says, okay, next. And then the machine will shuttle that letter into the sorting bin and give them a new letter or management is, was pushing for sort of an automatic pacing, a machine pacing model where every letter would only be in front of the worker for let's say four seconds or something like that. Um, and if they didn't get it, they didn't get it, but it would mean that the worker couldn't slow down, you know, had to sort of stick to this really rigid sort of pacing. Um, and management, you know, hired these research consultants to come in and see what was working and what wasn't working. And the, the research was pretty conclusive that, hey, operator, operator pacing, which is to say humans deciding, you know, hey, this one's a little bit harder to read. I'm going to take a few more seconds on this, but it will increase the accuracy. The consultants found that that was far and away more sustainable, more efficient, more cost effective. And then management decided to go with machine pacing anyways. And it, you know, sort of meant that workers were under sort of stricter regime of control service outcomes were worse, um, but it did kind of undermine worker autonomy. And so there's a lot of little bits like that from postal history that are kind of hard to ignore once you see them stacked up and up and up. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that, you know, much, much of postal history could be distilled to this kind of like recurring debate between management and workers over what to do with new technology and how it should be implemented. And worse working conditions and uh, less efficiency means less productivity. And what the management wants is more productivity. You write the Postal Re Reorganization Act renewed the uh, post's commitment to provide a basic and fundamental service, but made clear that a balanced budget was of equal, perhaps greater importance. What impact has that focus on a balanced budget had on the efficiency and productivity of the post office to get packages to the right place at, on time? Right. So that's referring to this 1970, um, you know, r really significant overhaul of the Postal Service, which in fact minted the United States Postal Service as such. It was called the Post Office Department before that. 
Um, this was signed into law by President Nixon. And I think, I mean, a, a quick way of sort of like accounting for um, the sort of the, the long tail of that act would be to say that this sort of business first mentality both motivated um, the pursuit of more automation, i.e. like less reliance on workers, workers need wages, workers can actually argue uh, with management and actually fight back and form unions. All that stuff was problematic and, and you know, inefficient, so to speak, from the uh, perspective of management. But the other thing that this business first mentality does is it actually like systematically undermines the investment in the automated solutions. This is how you end up with, as you were uh, describing earlier, the situation at the remote encoding center where you have a, you know, a million different subcontracted bits of the puzzle that are supposed to work together. And in fact, don't really work together that well. Um, because if this, you know, this business first mentality ultimately means we need to reduce costs and increase revenues. And those two things don't always figure in together nicely to create like optimal conditions for good service. Um, and so the postal reorganization act, um, I mean, one way to look at that would be to say that it both, yeah, it created the conditions under which automation was both necessary, but also destined to fail. Um, in in some kind of some sort of predictable way, and I think that the REC, the remote encoding centers, where you can kind of see the fallout from that, where we have you know this the postal service does operate this enormous uh, you know this vast machinery, and even so, a thousand humans in Utah have to sort of you know clean up after the machines every day, twenty four hours a day, three hundred sixty five days a year. Um, and the machines have gotten better and better and better, but these people who got hired in the mid nineties and, you know, some of them I spoke with have been there since then. Um, they were told during their job training, Hey, this is temporary. Um, the machines are going to, you know, make you redundant in, in no time, just so don't get too comfortable. They're still going. And, you know, some, one of the workers I spoke to said like the last few percentage points take years and years and years um, just referring to, those the sort of like those last little air the last few chunks of uh mail that are just really difficult to deliver there's always going to be something that kind of defies or exceeds or challenges the you know the automated logic of um this machinery so because again you know we, we don't we don't live in a world that uh <laughs> is fully amenable to automation we know that from uh any number of case studies think about like self-driving cars why why don't we have those yet um so, so what happens to worker efficiency when, you know, as you pointed out to this uh, about this one worker who's been working there for 25 years, when they are under constant threat of losing their job from day one, do they do they work harder to keep their threatened job or does that demoralization of potential precariousness undermine worker productivity and efficiency? Because, again, this seems like a process that undermines the things that the management wants most, and that's productivity. Yeah, that is a great question. And I think... Um the worker that you're referring to is a guy named Nairn who started as a keyer in 1994 on the first day that the rec opened and now is the manager of operations. He runs the place. Um, and I was asking him about pretty much exactly what you just asked me. Like what has this meant for workers year to year to year? Um, and you know, there's only one remote encoding center now, but in 1999, there were 55 of them. There were 30,000 keyers employed across the country. They were doing 25 billion images per year. So it was, the, you know, and it wasn't started with that in mind. It was started as this like short-term fix, just waiting for the machines to get good enough to kind of like, again, render these humans redundant. And something Nairn told me was not only that there's this constant refrain of like, hey, you know, the machines are coming for your jobs. 
Um, but also that what it, you know, the, the Salt Lake City wreck, which is where Manor works, the re single remaining wreck, was the first to open and it's now the last one standing. And I asked him, I was like, is there, was there anything sort of like, did you know that was gonna be the case? Did they intend for that to be the case? And what he told me was no, actually, the individual wrecks, which were scattered all across the country, were essentially put into competition with one another and like had to individually, um, you know, increase their productivity and fight with one another to be the last wrecks standing. So in 2014, there were still two. There was one in Wichita. There was one in Salt Lake City. Uh, and, you know, Naren told me, he was like, we just had to get better at doing the job um, such that we would be the one selected to kind of carry the torch forward. And so I think one could read into this that uh, this sort of like desperate pursuit for productivity at all expenses is from, from the perspective of management kind of creates or sort of like, let's say undermines worker solidarity. Like the, you have all these wrecks, there are people doing the same job across the country. It's a really critical piece of, you know, communications infrastructure in this, in this country that these people are doing this job, getting, you know, many billions of, uh, pieces of mail each year delivered to their destination and they're put in competition with one another. So I think that that um, tells you something about the sort of, uh, I don't know if that still is like this universal public service um, is the driving ethos um, here, but yeah. So, you know, these workers, these, many of these workers are unionized. It's not to say that they're, you know, in total, uh, you know, squalid conditions or anything like it's actually it's a, it's a solid facility like they have a good ergonomics program they have standing desks at this place um but it's just to say that they were still you know it was a kind of zero-sum game um between the wrecks as there were both fewer and fewer total hards uh you know these pieces of mail fewer and fewer of those to uh sort and redirect over the years so there was 25 billion in uh pieces of mail in 1999. There are about a billion per year now. Um, but the other thing that Naren told me is that as the number of pieces of mail goes down, you know, logically it follows that those are because the ones that are remaining are harder and harder and harder to actually read and, uh, you know, decipher. So the work that the tiers at the Salt Lake City Rec do is, you know, increasingly difficult uh, with each sort of passing day and year. And you're right, hamstrung by successive waves of neoliberal policymaking, the twin values of service and innovation upon which the post office was founded had been rendered incompatible with one another. So there apparently there was a time when service and innovation were compatible at the post office. Can that happen again with the U.S. Postal Service? Or is there something you know, foundational, fundamental about the U.S. Postal Service that does not allow service and innovation to be ca uh, compatible? I would say that that is a question of political will. Um, you know, we tomorrow, Biden could announce some, you know, significant investment in postal infrastructure and sort of, um, or even just a sort of like redirection of what the postal service is supposed to do now. I mean, it's, you know, it's competing with FedEx and UPS and, and increasingly Amazon. Um, although of those four, uh, you know, enterprises, only one of them is this sort of public private thing. The other three have, a single motive, which is to say, you know, profit motive. And, you know, you could just remove the postal service from that question and make it something else, make it a, this would be, I'm, I'm kind of uh, under stating how difficult this would be to do in practice, maybe, but like you could just change what the postal service is. Um, there's nothing stopping that from happening. So I don't think there's anything inherent about the postal service. I think that it has been put in a position of 
um, you know, where its hands are tied and it's playing by it's, you know, it's, it's forced to sort of like, um, submit to market dynamics while also not being, uh, able to play by the same sort of cutthroat rules of, uh, you know, for-profit logistic, uh, business as these other ones are. So it's kind of a question of what, what do we want the postal service to be? Is there still a place for the postal service, uh, in 2021? Um, I mentioned this in the piece, but maybe the ship has sailed. The postal service in the late seventies, early eighties was on the precipice of inventing something like email. I mean, they didn't invent it, but they're like popularizing something like email. Um, and then the way I just, you know, I'm invoking Amazon now, but AT&T basically told the postal service that they had to stop doing this email thing because it was unfair that the postal service could operate, uh, without profit, even though it was offering this, you know, seemingly kind of novel, uh, interesting way to communicate um, because they, you know, AT&T couldn't compete if they, because AT&T needs to please its shareholders. USPS didn't have shareholders. Um, and so I think, you know, maybe the question you're asking has already been answered. And it's like the USPS is, has been so sort of, uh, you know, eviscerated over the last several decades that it's, it's a sort of moot question at this point, but um, you know, I think it still is worth asking. What do we, what do we need the postal service for? Um, yeah, and you point out that it, you know, we provide a public subsidy for private enterprise. That's what the post office does. Private enterprise gets affordable mail delivery. Uh, Amazon gets affordable mail delivery through the post office through public subsidies. So, I mean, clearly, who's benefiting from this are people like Jeff Bezos. To what extent then is Jeff Bezos's wealth due to public subsidization of the private postal service? Uh, it's a good question and a question I think that you and I would agree about the answer to. Um, and I think that Bezos is not alone in being, you know, sort of figures who have amassed uh, sort of ungodly sums of wealth, but there's a sort of bait and switch between like where this value, uh, from from where this value has emerged. And I think, you know, you in the, the bit you read from the piece a second ago, I f- referred to neoliberal policymaking, which... Think of something, you know, a phrase that may be overused and so is so sort of uh, amorphous as to be meaningless. But I think one thing that I would point out is that you know, neoliberalism. People think about privatization, um, globalization. But another really, and maybe the central sort of point of neoliberalism um, <clears throat> is not about the state sort of being removed from market actions, but it's about the state, uh, you know, sort of like managing the market and ensuring that the market can do its thing and intervening, but only in ways that are productive to the market. And I think that the state sort of keeping the USPS around such that it can subsidize things like Amazon, um, who used the USPS to build its own, you know, while it was kind of like developing its own logistical uh, infrastructure, sort of siphoning off really, really critical postal resources. Well, then, you know, in in the next, the next year, next years, whatever, undermining the postal service by offering things like, yes, same day delivery, which the postal service could never compete with. But there's, there's really interesting research that has tracked, um, you know, public perception of quote unquote, like fast delivery over time. And it used to be that like a week delay in delivery was totally fine. Consumers were okay with that. And then slowly but surely that's turned into like, like two day delivery is now the standard. And that didn't really need to be the case. Um, obviously, you know, appeasing consumers is, is important in some ways, but not always. Um, 
I, I was just reading there's a proposal that, um, you know, Amazon could make a sort of positive move by reallocating how it prioritizes sending stuff. Like you might not need um, some little new electronic gadget same day delivery, but you might need, you know, groceries or whatever other sort of essential items Amazon is now handling same day. Um, but that's not how, that's not the logic under which Amazon works. Amazon works under the sort of like who can pay for it logic. And, and if that's the case, then the kind of the, the sort of universal service that Amazon appears to offer is universal only in some ways. And whether or not we think the postal service was ever a truly universal service, the logic itself that drove that vision was very different. Um, and it had a lot less to do with, you know, who can pay what and just sort of, you know, attempting to kind of democratize uh, communication. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that you, you don't get something like Amazon without a sort of robust but threatened public um, sort of well of resources from which to draw. That's the case with a lot of uh, the stuff that we now refer to as big tech. The title of your piece, again, is The Non-Machinables. These are the keyers who work at the remote encoding centers. How close are they to being completely replaced by automation? Because it seems like not only has that threat been around for 25 years, but the threat has always seemed to be, we're going to have this complete automation. It's just around the corner. Yeah, I mean, I would maybe just remind... uh, you and the listeners and I guess the readers that the point of the piece is just to show that the question you just asked is not a technical question. It has nothing, it has very little to do with technolo- technological progress. It has a lot more to do with sort of social negotiation, political decision-making, um, you know? And so I think that the question of whether or not the rec will be there in one year, be there in five years has less to do with these kind of new, you know, artificial intelligence infused sorting machines, which the postal service has, you know, invested in, they have another new sort of private partner contractor to that has, you know, they announced, I think two years ago to bring AI to postal service. That's a good sort of narrative, I think, from uh, the postal services perspective, it gets to show that they're this modernizing institution, but that's what they've been showing for a century. Um, you know, there was a big announcement in 1950 that we're postmaster general was committing to this crash program of modernization. Um, and so I think the question of you know, or, you know, what the sort of future holds for the rec is probably a sort of microcosm of the the bigger question of what the future holds for the USPS. Um, I can imagine a USPS without a remote encoding center. I think it would still function. Um, But maybe that means that the, you know, those hards are just handled on site, which is how, you know, happened long ago before the recs exist, existed, um, where individual processing plants, people on site would just handle the sort of remaining bits that the machines couldn't um, couldn't sort of fully process. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a question of whether or not the Postal Service feels that it needs to or is capable of, of yeah, handling the, you know, it still is a billion pieces of mail per year that go through the rec. So if that number dwindles to 100 million, a million, like, you know, it's not a technical question. It's a social question of like how many uh, is enough to just kind of discard as like a rounding error. So... We have been speaking with Brian Justy, who wrote the Logic Magazine article, The Non-Machinables. After 150 years of technological innovation, the problems facing the United States Postal Service are only getting harder. You can follow Brian on Twitter 
at the letter B, followed by four underscores, then the letter J, followed by five underscores. Find out more about Brian at b-j.us. One last question for you, Brian, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write the story of the remote encoding center, the wreck, and its certain uncertain future is a parable for what happens when a robust public service is systematically hollowed out by the dagger of neoliberalism. For the postal service, this dagger has often been hidden within the cloak of technological solutionism. Can technological solutionism hide austerity elsewhere, or is this unique to the circumstances of the USPS? What can we learn about uh, austerity when we look at technological solutionism? Uh, Well, (laughs) thank you for the great question so far and for this last final question, which is uh, also, I think, um, an important one to ask and one without an easy answer. Um, I would say that the USPS is far from unique in sort of being subjected to these dynamics. You can find this kind of thing almost anywhere you look nowadays. I would say that maybe the USPS is particularly useful as a case study because of its status as this sort of one of a kind uh, public institution that you know people people love people are kind of frustrated by sometimes it loses our mail here and there um, stuff is delayed etc but it's you know despite all of that i think this yeah this this relationship between sort of quote unquote technological solutionism which is to say that like you know there's a sort of forward narrative of progress like tech will save us um, the postal service is one of the places where you can kind of see the 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 you know the the rough edges of that narrative um, play out and where the chasm between the sort of rhetoric and the actual, you know, manifestation is, is, is increasingly wide. Um, so I think that it's worth thinking about the postal service and studying the postal service for that reason. Um, but you can find, I think, rich examples all over the place um, to see exactly this kind of, uh, this kind of thing playing out. Brian, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. This really is a fascinating piece. Again, you can find Brian's writing, The Non-Machinables, at logicmag.io. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Chuck. And I, I would just apologize for forcing you to read uh, that, uh, that Twitter handle and URL. I'll admit I did not make those with uh, any any sort of... Um, thinking that they would ever be read on the radio. So they were not, read, they were not, not made with, the, with that in mind. I apologize. Maybe again, I'll have to go read, again, read that's my online presence. Again, that's B followed by four underscores and then the J followed by five underscores to follow Brian on Twitter. Thank you so much, Brian, for being on the air. And I accept your apology. Chuck, I appreciate that. <laughs> Take care. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is is hell alex what's this week's question from hell and how are our listeners answering answering this week's question from hell is what mantra are you repeating what mantra are you repeating to thrones says don't say doing your wife don't say doing your wife jesus phone shouldn't be bigger than penis says (laughs) actually that's not the mantra either (laughs) i can break out of jail with a lighter so is there any point in making laws blood Old friend eat fart 69 says chant after me. You are an incredibly powerful salesperson who continuously climbs higher and higher up the ladder of success. <laughs> you are an incredibly powerful salesperson who continuously climbs higher and higher up the ladder of success. Success. <laughs> Old friend JB says everybody's stupid demon is on my butt. Kilter says 99 bottles of beer on the wall. 99 bottles of beer. 
Harrison P says, rise against the enemies of God. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, Brian D says, everybody's stupid. Hypercar driver says, smoke grass, catch bass, and most importantly, be kind. Folks, derogatory, says, I can easily shapeshift into a capybara. <laughs> Philippe A says, for, for a Bolsonaro, mantra of most of Brazilian people nowadays. Yeah. Brian W says, OF, 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 OF. <laughs> Baby boy Leary posts uh, an image of a comic strip, which is just someone ranting themselves liberals over and over and over again. <laughs> Uh, Jack says, it's after the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? Jacqueline S. says, Pete Buttigieg isn't real. He can't hurt you. And finally, Sincere Poster Mo says, just got to get through the week. I repeat this at least once a week. What was the one with God in it that you just read? The uh, Rise Against? What was that? Uh, one Harrison P. says, Rise Against the Enemies of God. <laughs> rise Against the Enemies of God. Harrison P., I really liked your response to this week's question from hell. Neil saying that his mantra is, my doppelganger is doing great. I really like that one. Jacob saying this moment is the best it will ever get, regardless of what the moment is or how bad or good it gets. David saying there's no basement at the Alamo. That's classic. John saying it's not your fault. Tom saying this too shall suck ass. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh... Any suggestions, Alex? Which oh, you picking favorite? the best one? Or yeah. you picking your favorite? I got a couple. There are a couple more. I got Jeff on, too. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Justin M says, oh, no, Sam Sater. What a effing nightmare. <laughs> David R says, Klaatu Barada Nikto, which actually has been... An, people have answered the question from hell with that multiple times before, I think. John T says, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. Neil, oh, yeah, Neil C says, my doppelganger is doing great. <laughs> Sorry, I jumped the gun on the winning thing. No, you're good. Uh, Flying Needle says, I've been behind in my listening, and while listening to last week and thinking about a mantra I heard Chuck say, ridiculously penis-shaped rocket. <laughs> Somehow I cannot get that phrase out of my head. Thanks, Chuck, for implementing that mantra in my head. My spirit will soar like a ridiculously penis-shaped rocket. <laughs> that is pretty good. Adam B says, at least I'm not as effed as that up as that guy. <laughs> Hypocrite Reader says, the nine billion names of God. What mantra are you repeating to yourself? Occult FTN says, My most recent daily mantra has consisted of three simple ingredients. Live, laugh, lament. Uh, finally, David S. says, Om, Om, Om my effing God. And Andrew S. says, Rock over London, rock on Chicago. So, uh, I know we, we're usually going to, we usually answer, name the winner of this week's question from hell after Jeff, but kind of jumped the gun a little bit, so... Any that you particularly like, Alex? Uh, and Rise Up Against the Enemies of God is pretty good. I know. That is really good. Boy, I really like this two shall suck ass. Yeah, also good. <laughs> so we're going to give it to Tom. Tom, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. What mantra are you repeating? Tom said, this too shall suck ass. Mine used to be when I was a dishwasher. I used to say, I, I really did this right before I would go to work every day. I would say to myself, I am miserable and weak. <laughs> that was an actual mantra I would say every day. But lately it's been, what the hell is the matter with me? Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. What? Truth, the moment of truth. 
Guess who's coming to dinner? <laughs> Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Juneteenth is now a federal holiday in the USA. It's nationwide. It's been celebrated by black people since 1866, a year after the event that instigated it happened, when on June 19, 1865, Union Army General Gordon Granger came to Galveston, Texas, to announce and enforce the Emancipation Proclamation of three years earlier. Texas was the last Confederate state to still maintain slavery. So Juneteenth doesn't just celebrate the official end of legal chattel slavery of human beings in the United States. It also celebrates when the Union Army came and forced Texas to stop enslaving black people. It doesn't just celebrate that the government announced there was to be an official legal change in the status of black human beings. It commemorates the sad truth that some people are so attached to their domination over other people's bodies, labor, and choices that they have to be forced at gunpoint to even pretend to acknowledge their personhood. And this is the first year it's gone official, national, legit. What does one do on Juneteenth? Celebrate black culture and all its multifaceted magnificence. That's what. Sing, dance, buy shea butter products and green, yellow, and black t-shirts. Eat soul food and drink strawberry soda. Educate yourself about black history. Pay attention to black political and artistic voices. Watch Small Acts, A Wrinkle in Time, and reruns of Treme and Watchmen. I was very excited to celebrate Juneteenth this year. Finally, a national holiday I could get behind. But maybe it was because President Simple Joe Malarkey only declared it a couple days before the holiday, so it was too short notice. Or maybe I just didn't plan the day right. I, I don't want to call out anyone by name, but I was very disappointed. I didn't get invited to a single cookout. There's one I probably could have invited myself to, and there was the two-day street bash in Lamert Park, but you know... Yeah, fellow likes to be asked. It is true that Juneteenth has been celebrated for 155 years, and never once in all that time have I been invited to a bash, cookout, sock hop, soiree, or to-do. So why should I expect to be invited to one now, just because some old white dude signed a piece of paper? I don't remember black people demanding that Juneteenth be made a national holiday anyway. So it's not like my attitude can be, hey, you wanted this, it's my holiday too now. Just like everybody's Irish on St. Paddy's Day, everybody's young, gifted, and black on Juneteenth. An essay titled, Is Juneteenth for Everybody? was published by the Crunk Feminist Collective and republished in Ms., written by feminist of color scholar and activist Brittany Cooper. It's her personal ruminations on the meaning of the holiday and her reaction to its being embraced by white people and by black people who hadn't previously known about it until last year when the protests against police carte blanche to murder black people were conspicuously in the public eye. One paragraph from the essay seems particularly salient to me. The only thing that Juneteenth can and should mean to white people in 2021 is an opportunity to reckon with the 156-year history and very present threat of white denialism. A significant swath of white people simply refuse to acknowledge that they lost on November 3rd. They have, in great defiance of the truth, decided that if they just don't concede, they can hold the nation hostage to their vision of a world of black and brown subjugation and white dominance. 
She's referring not just to today's white denialism, but the white denialism of Reconstruction when the South forced their denial of defeat in the Civil War on their black populations through terrorism and Jim Crow, and white denialism as a continuous toxic vein throughout our national history. We all have our shoulds, but the instant someone tells me what something should mean to me or what I should do or how I should behave, I instantly become annoyed, aggrieved, and resistant. That's part of my heritage as a spiritual descendant of those who've always resisted persecution and analyzed its causes in order to rebel against them in every age. That's what I think black people, white people, queer people, poor people, and all people should do. That's my big should. And it's why capitalism is at the top of my list of wrongs to be righted. But in the end, I can't say I really have any disagreement with Cooper's analysis and her prescription didn't hurt my prickly, fragile feelings hardly at all. I agree that Juneteenth is one among many opportunities for me to reckon with the history and threat of white denialism. But I also want food. Like it or not, it's a national holiday now. And if it's not a fast, it's a feast. So Juneteenth morning at about 8 a.m., I woke up and drove down to the corner of Vernon and San Pedro, a few blocks east of the 110, to where I used to patronize a particularly marvelous carnitas truck before COVID. I just want to make sure they were still there, and they were. A friend and I could go there the next day, which we were planning to do, but I happened to score a very rare parking space just a few yards from the truck, so I figured I'd have one taco, two bucks, for the best carnitas taco, with the meat and skin so beautifully chopped up together. Best money I ever spent on food. By the time I was finished, it was about 9.30 a.m., and I thought I might drop by Phillips Barbecue, which was about seven minutes away. Phillips is excellent barbecue, and surely there would be something special going on for Juneteenth. I saw on Google Maps that it opened at 11. I could kill an hour or so. I drove around the Lamert Park neighborhood where there was scheduled to be a big thing for the next couple days, but that didn't start till noon and folks were barely even beginning to set up. And then I went and parked across the street from Phillips and listened to some This Is Hell while biding my time until I got out and saw their special Juneteenth hours had them opening an hour later than usual. And they were warning of crowds and the necessity of pre-ordering and Chef Marilyn's queen of down-home southern goodies down the block was similarly delayed and similarly warning and I had to pee so I bought a bottle of Fanta strawberry at a gas station hoping in exchange to bargain for the use of their bathroom no dice so I peed behind the gas station I got antsy and went home too much waiting is not celebrating Later in the day, I made myself some country ribs and chicken to go with my red soda. Not a big fan of barbecue brisket. I've rarely had it done right. And it's not a cheap cut of meat. And then I watched an episode or two of the TV adaptation of Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. And then I wrote this. And that could be the way I'll do Juneteenth from now on. 
But another tradition I have is to try to ingratiate myself in order to wangle invites to holiday meals. Rosh Hashanah, Passover, Christmas, Thanksgiving, or any old parking meter holiday barbecue. That's my holiday ritual. I'm sure my black friends who celebrate have been doing so with their extended families for years and years. And I know I'm not part of those families or those traditions. And maybe they're afraid I'll say something foolish like, you know what Juneteenth needs? A mascot. Kid-friendly, like maybe Hong Kong Fooey, the cartoon martial arts expert dog janitor voiced by Scatman Crothers. Or Urkel. Everybody loves Urkel. Hey, I promise not to do that, nor anything of the sort. My sincere condolences that your holiday has been commandeered by the United States of America. It's an empire. That's just how they do things. They did it to your bodies, your music, and your food. I mean, you really should be used to it. And listen. Commemorating the refusal to relinquish or even acknowledge legal domination over other people's bodies, choices, and labor until forced at gunpoint? That's a holiday we've needed forever. Let's make it American as apple pie. So get ready for next year. Guess who's coming to dinner? This has been the moment of truth. A good day. We've been going over all week, Jeffy, so I've got to leave you. Now, I know we've done five hours of shows this week and four hours of time, so apologies to Alex and every, all the board ops this week. I so. apologize to everyone. I especially apologize to uh, Jim Norwood for volume shaming him on the TH <laughs> website. Uh, but, Chuck, as you're, as the only Jewish person affiliated with the show, yeah. as far as I know. Uh, and that's uh, not true, but go I ahead. I do. Oh, okay. It isn't. Yeah. Is anybody giving you financial advice, though? <laughs> Nobody listen, should. Listen, the Lebanese lira is trading at 16,000 lira to the dollar right now. Mm -hmm. So if there was ever a time to get a great deal on a pile of burning tires, this is it. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Okay. If you like what you have heard on This Is Hell this week, please show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. See all the ways you can contribute to This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise, and a direct link to our weekly Patreon podcast. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time tomorrow. Podcast shortly after at the same place on Patreon this week. Well, my apologies, but I've been very distracted all week, a week that has seemed longer than most. It's why I accidentally jumped the gun on naming the question from Hell winner earlier than we usually do. As I mentioned on yesterday's Wednesday show, I'm attending my oldest brother Matt's memorial this weekend in the town where he lived in Michigan, and it's kind of hard to think about anything, to be honest. Apparently when someone very important in your life, in your past, your future, your present... When uh, that someone is not part of your future or your present anymore and is no longer around to share a past that only the two of you shared, it's kind of a big deal that leads to big questions about big things. So yeah, tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell starts with death 
and the death doesn't stop there. Also on Patreon tomorrow, in 1988's Manufacturing Consent, past This Is Hell guests Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman famously make the point about the complicity of U.S. media in supporting the empire and its killings. They mention how the cover-up is done voluntarily through ignoring crimes of U.S. clients that do not fit the news media's narrative while having an unrelenting focus on the crimes of U.S. enemies, a focus that reinforces the pro-USA views the media shares every day, all day. Chomsky and Herman's point, or case in point, is the the attention the media gave to the 1975 atrocities committed by the Khmer Rouge by communists in Cambodia, where the U.S. was trying to justify an illegal war, while completely ignoring the genocide committed against the East Timorese by a U.S. ally, Indonesia, at the exact same time. And last night when I was rummaging around the archives, thinking about death, high off my ass, and we really need to air out the archives room, it's disgusting. I stumbled across a December 2001 interview with John Miller, media and outreach coordinator at the East Timor Action Network. John talked about the then-breaking news that up until that week, there had been mere conjecture and speculation about the East Timorese genocide. That breaking news was President Gerald Ford and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger gave the green light to Indonesia on their, let's say, legally problematic, although it was arguably illegal, invasion of East Timor. That invasion would become one of the worst human holocausts of the 20th century, with an estimated 300,000 or more East Timorese systematically killed by Indonesia. And just like the original genocide, the breaking news of U.S. complicity in that genocide also went unmentioned in the U.S. media. So it's a not-so-subtle reminder from your friends here at This Is Hell that Henry Kissinger and Gerald Ford are war criminals, and one of them is dead, so can we please arrest the other one and bring Hammer and Hank to the International Criminal Court and try him already? I know there are warrants out for his arrest on crimes against humanity for what he did with Allende in Chile, right? So those war crime warrants are still out, aren't they? Because I, I want to see Henry Kissinger do the Spandau Ballet for the rest of his life. So tomorrow on Patreon Podcast, it's death. Death for me, death for the East Timorese, but the only way you can hear that is by subscribing on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell radio or slash this is hell. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled for next week's show? Yeah, Tuesday we got Robin Hanel to talk about his new book, Democratic Economic Planning. And we got the PDF? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sent it Awesome. To Anything else? Uh, still working on Wednesday and Thursday. We might be hearing some folks from some folks about uh, the Atlanta Forest. Oh, sweet. Uh, we start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this, this week's hangover cure. And this week's hangover cure is lengthy and annoying. Before drinking healthy fats and vitamin C, while drinking, avoid carbonation, drink the same drink all night. After drinking, it's water and bland carbohydrates. See, I, I said it was long and annoying. Thanks to this week's guests, including historian Juan Cole, the founder and chief editor of Informed Comment. Juan has been appearing here on This Is Hell since pretty much the beginning, but uh, we don't have any of the interviews that we have done with him in the past. But on Monday, because I'm not going to be here, I believe Alex will be playing the last time that Juan was on the show in October 2013. So we can compare what he talked about this week when it came to Iran and Israel to what he was talking about in October 2013 when it came to Iran and Israel. Also, thanks to Carol Anderson, author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Thanks to Cole Stangler, who wrote The Intercept article, U.S. Sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela Hamper the Global Fight Against COVID-19. Also, uh, and just like uh, 
Carol. Carol has been on the show three times, so has Cole. So if you want to hear our interviews with Carol or Cole, just go to thisishell.com and search on Anderson or search on Stangler. And thanks to today's guest, Brian Justy, who wrote the Logic article, The Non-Machinables. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Jess Lipka, Richard Norwood, and Egon Sheely for running the board. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. And as always, special thanks to Theron Humiston just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com when it's all about death, my brothers, and that genocide where President Ford and Henry Kissinger were complicit. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms toward the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.